Hello and welcome to A New Nation, discussing the news that matters. My name is Nick Ward and I am thrilled to be joined by my lovely co-host Nathan Sparling. One of these days, Nick, you're going to get that opening section right. But Was that not correct, this week Nathan? Is, this week is not that time. No, because obviously uh, A New Nation is the podcast discussing the ideas that matter. Not Because we do more than just not discuss the news. Not the news that matters. I got Indeed. our own tagline wrong. <laughs> great, great. Hope but, the BBC is listening. Um, <laughs> offering me a job. Presenter of the year, Nick Ward. Yes, it's d- delight to be here. On And what's even more enjoyable is this it's still light outside when we're recording yeah. the podcast and I don't actually remember a time that that's happened in a long time actually for the duration of the time we've been recording this podcast but we've got a very special guest with us this week Nick do you want to introduce her yeah we've got um the wonderful MP Amy Callahan. Woo! hello um, hi Amy thank you so much for joining us no no problem at all delighted to have to be here uh, and, to be in my living room with you. Virtually <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> here. That was one of the things we discussed with Matt Ford last week was the different dynamic that there is recording a podcast like this um, virtually without um, being next to each other. Um, but he used to record his podcast with an audience, so we're, we're glad that we're not having to harangue an audience. Oh, that's a lot of work, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's a lot of prep. That's a lot of there's a lot of things that could go wrong, especially the way that we record a podcast. If there Ooh. was 50 people watching us, I'm not sure if we would rise to the occasion. Hopefully so. Hopefully. Now, before we get into the meat of the podcast, just to um, make it clear, as we do every week, that we are... Not um, sharing the opinions of our employers or anyone associated with us. And sometimes, as we always say, some of these opinions are not even our own. We like to debate and bicker, which you've probably heard over the last 20 weeks of podcasting. Um, but but do keep that in mind. We are here to have a discussion, debate, um, and be as open and as frank as we can. So do not take that as the views of anyone else associated with the podcast. Now we're going to go um, and we've got some news of the week um, and then we're going to get um, asking Amy some questions about her life and times in, in Westminster and before that. Um, the first bit of news, um, what's the first bit of news we're going to talk about, Nick? I you know, I always take the opportunity to um, have a go at the Labour Party whenever I can. But it seems like this week the Labour Party are anti-democracy. They've, they've, <laughs> they have taken away the right for their candidate, Holly Cameron, to run as a candidate because of some strange new process where the SEC um, had, had obviously interviewed her again after approving her as a candidate because of comments she made in the Herald last week what do you think about this nick so i think it was the national so a slightly a slightly less unbiased source than the herald um and i think that does uh, that mean her views are any less well i think it actually means that in some ways her views may have been misconstrued um and actually she's argued so far that they have been i think when so this is my take on it right so just for people to understand what happened you know um holly cameron was the candidate in glasgow kelvin for scottish labor she um expressed views about a second independence referendum and the way the media was reporting it was that she was then basically sacked as being the candidate and um, Glasgow Kelvin has been asked to select a new person. Now, I don't think that was actually the issue, because if you look at what the... So lots of people in the Labour Party from one side are going, absolutely, she should be sacked. She's got a, an a opinion that there could be a second Scottish referendum. Like, I'm sorry, but there, there could be a second Scottish independence referendum if the SNP win a majority. Like, 
I honestly think that if you were a Democrat, whether I want one or not, if the majority of people in this country vote for the SNP who are standing explicitly on a platform to have one, I do think that that legitimately means that they have a right to have one. However, I probably just got myself deselected there. However, <laughs> however, that was not the problem. The problem was that when she met with the SEC, so the Scottish Executive Committee of the of the uh, the National Executive Committee of Scottish Labour, um, they could not they could not believe that she would follow the Labour whip. And that is a different thing, right? Because you have to have a level of collective responsibility, sometimes even if that goes against what you personally believe and argue, because you're part of a movement. And our policy positions as a party are decided through democratic structures. They're decided through the National Policy Forum, where people come together who are elected from different uh, CLPs to, to decide these things. So to, to put forward your own view is fine. But then to say, I'm standing to be a candidate for this party, but I will not follow the party whip, I think is a different matter. But do you not think, right, you've got a candidate here running against, running against an SNP candidate in an SNP, in a, what would be now considered a really safe SNP seat, um, I think. Um, and do you not think that if the Labour Party want any chance of winning any of the constituencies in Scotland, they might want to rethink their approach and let candidates um, consider what these local issues might be. You know, if independence is top of the agenda for people in Glasgow Kelvin, then it's absolutely right that a local Labour candidate might want to support an independence referendum. Amy, what do you think? I completely agree with what you've just said there, Nathan. But see, at the heart of this, um, a woman's been denied the chance to stand for the Scottish Parliament and I think that's, you know, a fundamental problem when we're trying to encourage more women into politics. Um, aside from the fact that obviously the Scottish Labour, I do believe, are denying democracy and stopping or believing that there shouldn't be another independence referendum. Who do they think they are? Boris Johnson. But um, where we are just now, I think, you know, Scottish Labour have a real problem and they should be, you know, having a wee rethink about, about how they go forward with another independence referendum. But but let's be but let's be honest. It's not it's not the position that is the problem. So if you look at her position, it's the exact same position as Monica Lennon's position. So it's not it's not the fact that she thinks that if the SNP win a majority, like she believes that there could be a second Scottish independence referendum. The the problem is that she said that she would put her belief in that before the democratic structures of the party. And one of the things well, the SNP the have been very it- good at. Well, one of the things the SNP have been very good at have been to have a lot of sense of party unity. They've been extraordinarily disciplined, and that discipline has really paid off. It's paid off because there's been very little internal disagreement. There's been very few, or, or internal disagreement that's, that's went out into the wider world. And as, what you could look at this is the, the Scottish Labour Party trying to do what you said there in some respects, Amy, which is get themselves together and say, actually, you have to agree to follow the Labour whip to be elected to the, the Parliamentary Labour Party, the same way that you probably had to agree to follow the SNP whip. So, That's what, so the I'm issue... struggling to understand how, sorry to interrupt you, I'm struggling to understand how she went back in front of the SEC and then at this point, had she not been in front of them previously before she got appointed as a candidate? I think that's so my, my position is is that yeah. this they've they've created a new process. Someone has spoken out um, about an issue, and they've al- almost you know retrospectively re-interviewed this person and and come up with that decision, having had already approved them as a candidate. And that's I think the bit it that screams of that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Whether that's true or not, but it does have that kind of feeling coming off it. 
Well, absolutely. It feels like this the secret process. We don't know what happened in that room, but this person had already been deemed fit to be a candidate. And then they said something about independence after Anna Sarwar, who who had a slightly different opinion than Monica Lennon in the leadership election about a referendum. Um, and it's almost like they've they've decided, no, we need to try and nip these conversations in the bud and therefore have removed a woman's candidacy. It's, it, I don't think it's Well, right. I'm, I'm not defending the actions necessarily, because I agree it, it's a way to make a, a mountain out of a molehill in, to a lot of res, in a lot of respects. And I think that if they hadn't removed her candidacy, I, I don't think it would have been the front page of newspapers. I don't think it would have been such a big issue. I think, actually, ultimately, you know, the members of Kelvin voted for Holly, and that's that's who they voted for. But and I, and I don't know about the process, so I can't come back on that. So I just don't know um, if it was a formal process or if you, what you say is that maybe it was created in response to this. But I would say that the issue is not that the issue is not that she uh, has that opinion. The issue is that she couldn't agree that she would be able to follow the whip, and that's what they were said. So we don't know. And Holly herself has been quite silent on this. So I, I, I would be interested to know that opinion, but. I think one Maybe thing I would definitely... we should invite her onto the podcast. That would Get her great. opinions. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. I, I think that would be great. But one thing one thing I would say that this shows, and I think you're both right on this, is that Labour continues to have a constitutional problem. Um, it continu- We continue to not have an answer to the thing which is still the main driving force, because the answer that we are giving might be a policy position, but our policy position cannot be to be against the democratic will of the Scottish people. We might say to people... We're going to argue against Scottish independence, and I think we'd agree that's a completely valid position to take. But what we cannot say to people is that you do not have the right to express that view, because I can't sign up to that, because that's not okay. Yeah, I completely agree with what you've just said there, Nick. It's about you know making sure that democracy takes place and takes its course. It's not about the actual way people vote when that does actually happen. It's but, funny, because... Yeah. It even feels like the Conservative Party in Scotland are more um, are talking about democracy more because all of their leaflets say we are the only party that can stop an SNP majority that will lead to an independence referendum. Even they recognise that an SNP majority oh, will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but talking about the Conservative Party, let's move on to our next news item. Um, and Amy, you were up in your first um, appearance after returning to parliament in prime minister and i think it was your first ever prime minister's question it was my right? first ever pmq um, how was it what did it feel like it would have been a, a, probably a bit more exciting if i was actually in the chamber sitting in the corner yeah. of the living room doesn't quite have the same effect but it was still quite an exciting prospect um and you asked a question about erasmus and this was before the government released their um, detail about the new turing scheme yeah that's it exactly um I've got a local organisation in my constituency that's set to lose 96% of their funding with, you know, moving from Erasmus to to the Turing scheme, which is just completely unacceptable. And that's unfortunately a part of Erasmus that too many people don't know enough about, is that there is a charity funding aspect and a volunteering aspect that helps people who are maybe less affluent in, in Scotland and throughout the UK. I didn't know anything um, about that. I didn't yes. realise that. So it gives young people who aren't in formal education a chance to go and experience like the best of the EU and to get some sort of mm. education and training and skills through that. So it's really, really important. This uh, organisation, Stand International, does like fantastic work. And unfortunately, what the Conservatives have done and what the kind of information that's been released on the Turing scheme has shown is that it's just, it's not even a half-arsed version of Erasmus. It's just 
a complete drivel compared to what the scheme that we had previously was. And and what's I think the most disappointing aspect of this is that we didn't we don't have to be in the EU to participate in Erasmus. It was one of the things that you know the the Prime Minister said no we're not going to leave Erasmus and then they opted out of Erasmus during the exactly. negotiations, but they yeah. didn't need to. Um, and they and you know he's disappointingly called this scheme after you know uh, a a legend in in the UK, Alan Alan Turing when it's really such a substandard um, substandard policy. He's claiming that by having almost means-tested travel support, that this will help people that Erasmus never helped. But what we know from means-testing is it never usually reaches the people that, that need it the most. Yeah. Mm. The two criticisms of your Erasmus that I heard from the Conservatives were that and it's interesting because what you've just said, Amy, really counters it, which is that this was a program for upper middle class posh people to go and have a year abroad, which was which was lovely for them, but wasn't actually supporting the majority of people. And also was in some ways an indoctrination program into the European Union that that would allow people to begin, you know, having European values instead of British values. And those were the sort of two main arguments against it but as but as you say like actually there was a side of the program which was helping people who weren't in university to still access travel and and other cultures exactly it's just it's when have the conservatives ever looked after working class people you know and it's it's these people in my constituency that are going to really feel the the brunt of this decision to move away from erasmus and you're completely right nathan obviously the government could have decided to keep the erasmus scheme going and the prime minister said um, a couple of times last year that they were going to keep the scheme going and then suddenly just made a complete U-turn as he does on this decision and has left the programme completely, leaving thousands of young people across the, the UK, you know, devastated by this decision. And, and initially, Bowie, I'm sure... Don't know if you've seen him on Newsnight, uh, Debate Night last week, Andrew Bowie was saying that this generation will completely lose out um, as a result of Brexit. It's just, you know, it's like... Totally. Here we go, and that's what that's, that's what the right. whole Brexit thing feels like. It's like a punishment on the young, is what it feels like. It's we are withdrawing opportunities. We are just we are withdrawing the access that that we as an old not me, I'm quite young, still touch wood, uh, but uh, the older generation had, so that younger generations don't get to have that anymore. And and for me, it's it's you know this this Erasmus stuff is the epitome of parochialism. It's it's you know it's closed door. It's pulling up bridges. And one of the things that 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 means that the chewing scheme is really not very great, from what I've read, is that it doesn't pay the tuition fees. Yeah. yeah. So how does it make it? In, so basically, it's just here's four hundred quid. Go have a nice time. What? It's it, like the fundamental part of like a mm-hmm. scheme like that is missing. Yeah. Also, like the whole point of Turing, uh, you know, the, I guess from a conservative point of view, they're saying, well, this is this gives opportunities for people to travel the world. But actually, like, you know, tuition when we were in the EU was pretty much free for other EU countries anyway. Um, we know that if you were to go to America, for instance, tuition is going to be like incomprehensibly ridiculously priced. Um, so that does completely remove the opportunities for people um, who can't afford it to go and study anywhere else. And there's no scope for EU citizens to come here as well. So it gives like a less rounded university experience here as well. So it's just too yeah. many and, and then, in it. 
Oh, and we don't get the, the funding that they bring with them. We don't get the money, exactly. but we also don't bring the culture and the talent. And like, you know, here in Edinburgh, there are so many people that are my friends who came here like on Erasmus, who, who've chose to stay here and add to our culture and our diversity. And that's suddenly been turned off. And I think that the long-term implications of that are going to be a less dynamic economy and it's going to be a less diverse society, which can only be bad for everyone, actually. Which is um, why we need independence shame. so that we can... <laughs> As an independent Scotland, rejoin the EU and rejoin Erasmus and have a much more well-rounded society with all these diverse cultures. I think we should have you on the podcast every week, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, or Labour government down in the UK, which also has different... But, you know, we, we all want to get back to the same place. I'll stick, I'll stick with my ideology. <laughs> That's fair enough. That is fair enough. We don't, we, don't try and, um, we don't try and turn people on this podcast, although Nathan occasionally has a go at me um, to see Only how far when you're he... wrong, Nick. Only, Only when I'm wrong. Wow, that's not happened yet, so we'll have to, have to keep trying. Um, so... Like talking of diversity and talking of, oh, this is a smooth transition. Mm-hmm. Talking of diversity, um, we've had one of the least diverse institutions, um, but one of, I suppose, least diverse but most important institutions in our nation um, has come under considerable fire this week um, because of its lack of diversity and its approach to someone who was more diverse than them with the Meghan Markle um, Prince Harry debate and discussion. So did you guys watch the Oprah interview? Did you enjoy it? How did you yeah, find it? How was it? that only Monday night? This has been such a long week. <laughs> such a long week. Oh. A I've, long I've not actually watched it all. I've just watched the clips. <gasps> yeah. Well, Nathan, I, 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 say, I say this very seriously. It is better than Desperate Housewives. Like it is I mean, that that's, good. That's a very low I mean, bar. I agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really like Desperate Housewives. <laughs> it's a great show. Oh no, no, we're not getting into that discussion again. <laughs> it's great. It like it was. I think. I think from my perspective, actually, the long form format of an hour and a half worked really, really well. But what was, what what felt amazing to me was that actually I felt like this was like a chat you would have with someone in your family or in the pub and they explain their decisions. And to be honest, what I heard was exactly what I, what I think we'd always suspected, which is that, you know, especially for Megan, that she had experienced a culture of intolerance and a culture of, I, I think racism. And, you know, it's about people understanding what racism is. That it, a racism mm. is not necessarily calling someone a bad word or, you know, saying I won't do this because of their skin color. Racism can be a series of, of small events and microaggressions and atmospheres and decisions that are made either consciously or subconsciously. And I, Cause I'm not necessarily sure which, but that created an environment where, you know, th- this woman, this first woman of color within the royal family felt understandably that she and her son and her husband through association with them were no longer welcome and were p- pariahs and outcasts. And I just think, you know, she made the point herself that what a wasted opportunity for the royal family mm-hmm. um, to be more like a modern family. And I just think it was so sad. So sad. And and also, I think one of the things that she highlighted as well was the misogyny. So I think there were so many layers from what she described of both the racism, but also actually levels of misogyny that were taking place from both the family and from the press as well, that, you know, she wouldn't have received if she was a different gender. And I just think that we have seriously let her and her son, and actually Prince Harry, who we all love, down. Mm. 
like significantly it's so sad i don't know if you saw what prince william said today oh sorry no no Uh, yeah i did see what prince william said today he said that he hadn't spoken to harry which to me was a bit of a shock that it's you know the interview aired on sunday and he's still not reached out or spoken to him which almost sort of corroborates what they talked about in the interview where they were sidelined and they were, you know, it was became conversations between private secretaries rather than between the family. Um, that, that, I saw that clip. But can I just jump in for a second? <laughs> Let's just be clear, right? Because they made the distinction really well. The royal family is a public institution. So it is a family, but it's also a taxpayer-funded public institution that has functions within our governmental system Mm -hmm. and just like any public institution they have a duty of transparency of candor but also under the equalities act like and they've as an institution it has completely failed in those duties and i think you know even looking at the statement that was issued by the palace you know there was no remorse in that statement there was no real acknowledgement that what was said was accurate and they were going to do something like if someone had made that kind of allegation against our organization we would conduct a full review and investigation we would make sure that we knew what was going on we would ensure that the right training was in place we would try to upskill ourselves and our knowledge and we'd say that no one's saying that from the palace all they're saying is it's a family matter so we're not going to engage with it. But they but weren't we... criticizing the family. They were criticizing the institution and how that public institution treated them. But are we surprised, given the way that they treated the, the firm, the family, um, treated uh, Prince Andrew? Like, he's still a working royal. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised after watching The Crown. Like, it just made <laughs> me think everything in The Crown is accurate now. I'm just like, oh, that's the documentary. It's no longer drama and the weird way they treated them. Amy, when you when you became an MP, did you have to sway... Like, I, I don't, are you a Republican or are you, are you a monarchist? What's your position um, on the monarchy? So I had to swear allegiance to the Queen, um, basically to do the job, which I was not was not really my cup of tea, to be honest with you. And I'm quite happy to say that I crossed my fingers behind my back. But, you know, <laughs> you have to make some sort of a... some sort of little gesture, don't you? But, you know, it's part of... The, unfortunately, part of the job that you have to, mm. to do so. Um, but yeah, I would rather, rather not have, but I did. Yeah. And then in independent Scotland, would you want a republic? Yeah, I mean, it's not really something I've actually thought of a huge amount because I want to get to that point of having an independence first and I see a whole lot of other um, things that I would like to put in place before that was something I would even consider. It's not been a huge thing for me, but um, I think, you know, see how it goes. If if we got independence with a monarchy, I would be quite content with that. I guess it's one of those Rather things not, that, but, yeah. I guess it's one of those <laughs> things that become part of the decision making of, of the people in an independent Scotland, isn't it? Exactly, it's, yeah. I think it's, you know, let's make it as democratic a process as possible and like let's put it to the people mm. would probably be my take on that. And do you think that what's happened with Meghan and Harry has undermined the monarchy and the support for the monarchy? Um, I think it should. Whether it has or not, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it definitely should. Um, at the heart of all this is a woman who has alleged you know, that there's been racist attitudes and behaviours towards her and that it really, really caused a huge struggle for her mental health and that when she you know, took the guts and the courage to actually speak out about it, she wasn't believed. I think that's the worst part of it, is that when she then spoke about these things, no one took her up on it. And no one was willing to offer her help. There's another problem there as well as the racism. 
about mental mm-hmm. health that we should be taking a lot a lot more seriously as well. She was almost punished for her mental health, wasn't she? She was, you know, she was kept away. She was almost locked up on her own. It was it was very old-fashioned way of dealing that. And, you know, the Piers Morgan fallout just shows that, uh, you know, someone comes forward with the mental health problems and they're mocked. And, you know, that's resulted in him leaving his job. And I think that's the right thing that's happened. But you're right. It just shows that, you know, there's a hypocrisy there where members of the royal family support mental health charities and talk about mental health a lot. But when actually it comes to supporting a member of their family with that, they really struggle. Um, it's absolutely think- despicable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's such an old fashioned institution. And if they wanted to bring themselves into the 21st century and modernize and become more current and relevant, Meghan and Harry were the way to do so. Mm-hmm. If they'd actually potentially treated them with the respect and the love that they deserved instead of, you know, pushing them under the carpet and, and locking them away was essentially what happened when Megan spoke out about mental health, mm. it seems. Um, and that seems like exactly what happened with Diana as well. You know, that this, this is almost like lesson not learned. You know, you lived through this once, you think you would know how to deal with it the second time. I think Harry kind of echoed that a few times, didn't he? Saying, you know, history was repeating itself and he was really concerned about that, which is just tragic, absolutely tragic. So sad. And, so sad. The, and how traumatising. The news that I don't think any of us knew was that she had left him quite a considerable wealth, um, almost that she foresaw this happening um, because he wasn't in line for the throne. So I think that highlights another part of what really shocked me about the interview, which was that, you know, the, the stuff about whether whether Archie would be a prince or not, like, in some ways, I'm not that interested in that, but I, I am concerned if that decision was in any way based upon his skin colour. And obviously there was the question about, you know, what would his skin colour be? Um, but the thing that really concerned me was the decision to remove the security of Prince William um, and his family. And Prince, that really shocked... Is what, is what were you going to say, Amy? Prince Harry. You said William. Prince Harry, sorry, Prince Harry. Prince Harry and his family. And that really shocked me because actually, if you consider like Prince Harry was born into royal family. He didn't choose to join it. Mm. And when he did that, he became a target of risk. And then he went and fought in Afghanistan and then became a significantly higher target. And then he married uh, the first woman of colour into the royal family and had a mixed race baby and became an even higher target for people. And the decision of this institution was that because he had chosen to step away from some of the activities of the royal family and said that he needed space, that they would no longer provide protection for him and his family when they were at risk. And so he was left in this horrible situation. And you could tell when he was talking about it, it was a panic of how do I protect my family? And I think like the thought of my mom, my grandmother, or anyone saying that we were going to put you or your family at risk, it's just unthinkable. And it just shows that there is a, a callousness and a ruthlessness at the heart that that is not normal and, and can't be accepted. And then the fact that he was then also financially cut off by his dad, which I think is also, you know, it's just this is not nice things or to do. These are not normal things to do. And then and then he stopped taking his phone calls. It like you know, um, Prince yeah, Charles stopped taking his phone calls. Wasn't it the oh, when he stopped taking my calls? I was like, oof. Yeah, it was an oof. Yeah, it was it definitely was. an oof. But no, I think that's yeah. the, you totally hit the nail on the head there. The point being, obviously, every, the whole world knew where Meghan and Harry were staying in Canada. You know, the media had the address, everyone knew where it was, and they removed the security right when the risk seemed to be at its highest point. It's, mm. That's terrifying for an individual, never mind for someone with a family. It's just, 
and, and in so a commonwealth con- in a commonwealth country as well not just like they went wherever they wanted on holiday they were staying in a commonwealth country mm-hmm. the queen is the head of state there um you know there is a certain level of jurisdiction even though obviously they have an independent government it just yeah smacks of of complete denial of responsibility you know like i i'm a bit i'm a bit like you you mean like i'm a bit like i'm i'm a, i'm agnostic on the royal family you know i think it's i think it's great stories good drama um would i prefer that the head of state was democratically elected of course i would um is it number one on my priority list of things that that should happen no um you know and and i i think they do good work but surely what this shows us is that this institution and remember, it's a publicly funded institution. It's part of the state. Needs radical reform and transparency. Well, I completely yeah. agree, especially when, you know, they're signing off on legislation. Yeah. Like, we need to have more transparency there. And actually, what we've seen in, in recent months is that they have even more of an impact on on legislation than, than we were led to believe, you know, with certain specific um, rules that have been uncovered in documentation. Um, so, yes, you're absolutely right. Shall we move on? Um, the Guardian um, had a story about all the different times that the Queen had, um, the Queen and Prince Charles had, you know, given advice and consent on legislation before it had even progressed. Um, an extra hmm. layer rather than just royal assent. Um, and it, the, the Guardian had a whole list of things, and it was only the Guardian that reported on it, um, but it was really an interesting list. Maybe we could get into that in more detail another time. Yeah. Um, shall we move on to our sort of final news item? Because we're going to talk about the culture in, in Westminster. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got quite a lot to talk about here, but we're going to try and keep it as... Uh, as as tight as possible because we obviously we were shocked by the news this week of um the SNP chief whip and and other allegations about SNP MPs from from staffers we know more widely that there has been um culture issues in Westminster um not just for um but you know that power dynamic between MPs and staff but also if you were a woman or um if you were from an ethnic background you know different culture dynamics um, so it'd be good to, I think, get into that conversation. Nick, what did you take from the news this week? I, I think, and I think I, I really want to hear Amy's opinion on this because she's the one that knows it firsthand. You know, we, we, we've talked in the past about behaviours and actions within politics becoming normalised when they're not normal and ways of treating and dealing and interacting with people becoming what is to be expected. And, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, in some ways, in her evidence about Alex Salmond um, last week, was that only last week? Like, what? Uh, Last week, um, you know, mentioned that as well. And she said, you know, we were perhaps inured to his behaviour when we shouldn't have been. And I think the allegations against the um, SNP chief whip, whether true or not, um, again, are worryingly symbolic of a culture at Westminster, which seems both very unhealthy and um, very unprogressive. And so, Amy, you know, you, you're a young woman. Um, you, you're recently elected. Um, you've went down to Westminster, and I'd love to know, you know, what were your experiences going into that that bear pit? How how did you feel that you were um, fully accepted and respected? Um, you know, no matter what your age or gender was, or do you feel that there was something there that was uncomfortable? 
I think there's definitely a power, power dynamic in Westminster that's different to, to other parliaments have worked in Holyrood and not seen anything quite as, as apparent as this between MPs and staffers. And I guess between MPs themselves as well, you know, depending on how long you've been elected for, that's definitely a thing. Um, and your age and, you know, your gender, I'm assuming as well. It's And, you know, there's MP only areas within Westminster where your staff members can't go. And it is quite quite apparent that there is a difference between elected members and, and staffers, you know, when we're all human beings and we're all trying to do our job. I don't I don't really get that. It's never been my, my cup of tea. But it's, it's definitely even a secret, co- Even a secret corridor in Westminster that only MPs are meant to go in. And lifts. Don't forget the lifts. That's definitely a, um, that's you, definitely a thing. Because one of the things that, like, you know, moving up from working down south and moving up to Scotland and um, back to Scotland from here and, and working in politics in Scotland and, and policy in Scotland, one of the things that really struck me in some ways with Hollywood, and this is going to sound like a weird thing to say, was the lack of booze culture. So, you know, like you, like, while there is a bar in Hollywood, like it, it, it just wasn't the same as when you're in Westminster and you're in the, the sports bar or whatever and, and that's where everyone went and I don't know. The culture is very different. Do you? Do you, how do you see sort of that alcohol and boozy culture? Were you ever a part of that, Amy? Did you? Did you <laughs> yes, enjoy going having a wee pint? Don't don't get me wrong. Like I enjoy going for a drink after work as much as the next person does. But I think it's just that it's so ingrained into Westminster, isn't it? Like, and the bars are so dingy and like so not dingy. out not out to that nice. Um, I guess it's also to do with the times, though, that, that Parliament sits. So in Holyrood, Parliament is usually done at half past five. And rather than go for a pint, you might want to go for your dinner at that point. But Holyrood, uh, Westminster, you know, on a Monday, it's sitting till half past 10. It's, it's previously sat till one o'clock in the morning. Um, even the sort of normal sitting hours are like seven, eight o'clock at night. So the next thing you want to do, like, or, or at least the culture breeds this, is, is go for a pint. And that makes go it easier, relax. almost. Listen, I love a gin as much as the next person, but I'm more the kind of go for dinner. So I would go for like a pizza or something afterwards. But that's it. Sometimes you leave and there's no restaurants open at that point. So you're kind of grabbing like a takeaway pizza. Or, you know, it's, it doesn't really work that well, the um, sort of the sitting times of, of Westminster. And that is probably where the drink culture sort of emulates from. And every single friend of mine who has ever become an MP or a staffer has talked about like the Westminster gate that you just pile on pounds um, because you just eating at the worst times and you're eating pizzas all the time yeah. and you're just like you know i've went up three belt sizes because it's the, it's I work the different timings of the eatings it's like you don't have breakfast you don't have any meal at a normal time you're, you know you're squeezing mm. things in between meetings you're between votes etc it's very very strange but at the same time i've only had what three months down in westminster <laughs> and the rest of it's mm. been done you know virtually so it's been quite quite an experience being an mp thus far so in, in your three months, sort of just going back to, you know, we're talking a little bit about the the culture and things. In your in your three months there, do you feel that you yourself has ever been sort of looked down upon or discriminated or you've ever seen any of that happen within the palace? I think obviously, you know, I'm an SNP MP, so we get jeered at much more than others do. And I think in general, we do get looked down upon by other MPs. Um, so the atmosphere there is quite intimidating when you're in the chamber mm. you're trying to ask a question or make a speech and you're kind of getting jeered at and leered at by Tory mainly Tory men as well that's quite an intimidating mm-hmm. experience and something that doesn't happen in other workplaces it is quite a, a strange thing to get used to like obviously you know I've done hustings before and I've done plenty of doorstepping and canvassing where people don't agree with you but having it all at once you know 
is quite quite a different experience and quite intense. Mm. And do you think that what Nicola Sturgeon said last week was right about potentially behaviours that wouldn't be acceptable in other professional realms being it more acceptable within political realms? Because I don't know, the, the rules just seem to be different for some reason. Yeah, I think the rules probably do seem different. Like I just said there, there's no other job where it's normal to be shouted at and jeered at. So different behaviours, not necessarily sexual behaviours, but, you know, even just sort of your normalised behaviours that we see on the TV in Westminster um, are different to any other workplace. But yeah, probably what Nicola said is correct. I've not particularly experienced that myself, but I would imagine that would probably be the case. And I think some of these wider culture issues, <clears throat> including what we've seen this week, you know, to me, there seems like really easy fixes to these in terms of, you know, complaining mechanisms. Because at the moment, there there is like, both both Westminster and Holyrood are almost void of any HR facility for MPs and MSPs and their, therefore staff. So, mm. you know, when you're an MP or an MSP, you become the employer. So there's not really a place for staff to complain about you um, unless, you know, there's a risk then to their job. So a lot of, a lot of the time, some, you know, what then becomes normalized behavior. And we heard it, you know, about people being hair-dryered or shouted at or, you know, demands being made of people up to, you know, more serious sexual um, allegations. A, a lot of that becomes normalised because people don't know where or how to report it. Um, and I think that's one of the key challenges that bo all parliaments have is how do we improve the HR mechanisms in an independent way so that they can be dealt with? Yeah, either we laugh at the sort of HR a comment that you made in your last podcast or well, it's just HR processes but there is a problem there like whether there does have to be HR processes put in place for staff because it's a very strange type of employment um, you know I, I was a, a MSP staffer before I was elected and there is kind of you know I obviously didn't have any problems fortunately but if if there was issues you know there's kind of strange ways for or no ways really for you to to get through sorry can you hear my dog in the background i'm going to need to go oh, like sorry, I'll be two it's our first okay. it's our, yeah, it's our first um our first dog um guest but let's um at this stage take a break um in the run-up to our election um in scotland we're going to be hosting different viewpoints um each week in the podcast and this week during our break we'll be hearing from heather herbert who's a scottish labor candidate for aberdeen donside if you're a candidate or someone that has an opinion and you want to share it on the podcast do head over to our website to submit an audio message um, and we'll get it on the podcast in the run-up to election and here we have our first break My name is Heather Herbert, I'm the Trans Officer for LGBT Plus Labour Scotland and I'm a candidate for the Scottish Parliament for both the Donside constituency and the North East Regional List. What the people of Scotland need going forward is good jobs. We need jobs coming out of the pandemic. We need a national care service, something that cares for people from cradle to grave. We need an NHS that's fit for purpose. All of these things are the very fibre of Labour policies. So we need a strong Labour presence in the Scottish Parliament. What we don't need is another referendum. We don't need a Brexit Mark II, something that 
sole purpose is to divide people and to set parties, set people against each other. Thank you. Welcome back to a new nation discussing the ideas that matter. We are joined uh, this week by the wonderful Amy Callahan, MP, um, and we've just finished talking about a lot of the news. But one of the things that we wanted to get in to discuss was, you know, on Monday it was International Women's Day. Um, the th- international theme this year was "Choose to Challenge." Um, was did you do anything for International Women's Day this year, Amy? Didn't actually do anything like formally through my through my job. I just done a couple of like little smaller things in the constituency, which was nice. Um, I uh, and- I said I sent my mum a message to say wishing my the strongest woman I know a happy International Women's Day oh, because she is the strongest woman. Absolutely I know. love it. I always love that um, when you see on on social media so many people use International Women's Day to highlight their their mum, and I think that's just so special. Yeah, nice. I usually spend International Women's Day with my mum or my gran or both of them, but obviously with, with COVID and the situation just now, that wasn't possible. But hopefully when I do get to see them again, we can sort of redo International Women's Day. That would be nice. You know, the thing that I love about International Women's Day is it was also the day that the Russian Revolution began um, in 1917. I, I, I find that really inspiring in some ways because it's like... It was the women, it was the International Women's Day March that sparked off the Russian Revolution, one of the greatest social changes in the history of this world. And, you know, for me, that's just, that's because women lead the way. They're so often at the forefront of fights for equality, they're standing up for oppressed minorities, and, you know, from my life, and I'm sure from yours as well, they're the people that have so often championed, you know, for me as an LGBT man, or as a gay man, you know, they've, they've championed our rights when maybe we felt that we couldn't champion them ourselves. And I just, I, yeah. All power to them, and I think you know Monday was was really nice to see um, people challenging uh, systems, uh, people um, to do better. At what's been I think more depressing and, and shocking is what's happened over the last couple of days, um, and women are, have been taken to social media to share their experience of the constant safety fears um, following the disappearance and and now what seems to be the murder of Sarah. Sarah Everard, um, and and one um, stat that I just seen on social media: ninety seven percent of young women in the UK have experienced sexual harassment. And that just is is utterly shocking. And to think that we had International Women's Day on Monday, and now this this travesty happening in London. Um, you know, the street that Sarah Everard was walking down was one that um, I used my, a friend of mine used to stay on. Uh, and I used to walk around that area so so often. Um, and it's just tragic, this news. It's absolutely horrific. And I, th- I think the most, this obviously, aside from what's happened to Sarah, the additional uh, tragic part of this is that, you know, so many women are now saying that they have safety concerns. And thinking about it myself, um, all these things that are coming out on social media, um, that Kate McCann's thread that she done, which I thought was really, really moving, um, these are all things that I do on a daily basis. But I've never actually mm-hmm. thought that it's because I fear for my safety. It's just something that I've always done. It's been ingrained in me. I think that's and the think- case for every woman that I know. You know, when your friend leaves your house to go home, it's like, text me to say that you'll get home safe. Text you when you're home safe. That's not something you would probably say to a male friend. I certainly mm-hmm. haven't. 
it's quite a quite a scary kind of quite Nick, a scary Nick, Nick does Nick does ask me to text text him when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> I get worried, I get worried. But, but but that's it's just some, you're a good friend. Yes, yeah. But it's an important point that you're making, though, Amy, because like. I feel like as a society, I'm going to use the word inured again, but I feel like as a society, we've become inured to actually that constant, you know, legitimate threat that women feel all the time for men. And actually, you know, I remember the first time I realized, so I've got three sisters, so you think that I'd realize it sooner, but I didn't. The first time I realized that, you know, almost every single woman in my life had had you know, I'd faced sexual assault or in some form or I'd, I'd felt intimidated or fear. And I was at university and my friend was explaining it. And I was like, what, even you? And she was like, yes, me. And, you know, there was actually a sense of shame in me for not realizing it sooner, if I'm being honest, because, you know, I don't think as men, we we realize often the privilege that we have of not being afraid. And when we do have situations when we're afraid, you know, we're in an unknown area and there's a group of youths or something or people that we're not sure, you know, for us, it's like, Oh my God, like what, what, how scary is that? And to think that those feelings and emotions are something that our, you know, our friends, our sisters, our mothers have had to go through their whole lives is just unacceptable. And what is even more unacceptable is men putting the responsibility of that oh. onto women did and you saying, see, oh. did you see the email that Harriet Harman got um, today? Totally. She tweeted that she tweeted about it. I'm going to get it up and, and read it. Cause I think it's just astonishing that someone actually like sat down and wrote this email. Um, they said, dear Ms. Harman, the naivety just of your before comment. Before you continue anything, oh. what, what, what is actually more shocking is that I don't think it is astonishing that someone mm. wrote that email. Yeah, no, I, I think actually you're think right. there's a lot of people that would hold this view, but it, please continue. You, uh, the naivety of your comment about Ms. Everards are depressing. You and I are about the same age. When I was a young man, it would have been unthinkable for a young woman to walk the streets alone at night. Why? Because there have always been weirdos on the lookout for lone women, and this has always been the case. It has nothing to do with male behaviour. Well, that's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. <laughs> he just said that there's always men looking for lone women to pry on, but that's nothing to do with male behaviour. It's quite clearly to do with male behaviour. You know, that's just so depressing, isn't it? Like, yeah. mm. and I know myself. You know, I'd th- there's this is not a new um, a new story that a woman has been you know murdered walking home or, or even raped or sexually assaulted. This is not new. We hear these all the time. And I know that like for myself, if I was walking anywhere late at night and there's a woman who's almost walking as well, I feel, you know, a bit not knowing what to do to make sure that she knows she's safe with me walking there, uh, whether it's crossing the road or slowing down so that she doesn't think I'm walking up behind her, lots of things. That's an active thing that I consider. But for people to think this is not about male behaviour, it's just... But what else is that about? Yeah. Like, honestly, what else... It just shouldn't be normal. And it shouldn't be normal that we're sitting discussing a woman who's been murdered, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because she was walking on her own. That should not be the case at all. But the, the problem is, though, it is normal. Right, and the problem is that that we have either created or we have accepted or tolerated, like the society getting to a point where, like, it's become normalized, and people write to you know Harriet Harbin and saying, "Look, there's always been weirdos," and actually, you know, it's not about how men behave; it's about, I suppose, what he's saying is it's not about how all men behave; it's about how some women behave. But what we have to accept is that all women uh, have faced these situations. Mm-hmm. 
and that men, even men who, you know, who aren't going to assault anyone, like there are behaviors that we have tolerated. There are things that people have said that we have not challenged. There are, you know, when we've been in groups of guys before and Mm -hmm. things, we're actually, you know, all these little things add up to creating a culture where men feel as if they have a right to yeah. harass women, to it's comment on their appearance. we've all allowed, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like Is looking that... at, I think men should be looking at themselves and looking at their friends and looking at their their family, their brothers, etc. And you know, if you see this kind of behaviour, like challenge it instead of letting it go unchallenged for once. There's a really good um, comedy, not that this is a comedy matter, but Daniel Sloss in one of his comedy sets talked about this as an issue where he had been in a larger group of friends and, and you know, there was maybe 10 of them and nine of them wouldn't, wouldn't challenge this one person who was being really disrespectful to women. He then went on to rape a woman and, and his, his point was, you know, we had the power to challenge him and we didn't, we stood aside and actually there was just no point. Because they thought it was funny. Like he's just been an idiot. He's just like, these are just jokes. And I think that was that's quite important as well. Is, is that sort yeah. of, it, it's not, you know, we, we hear about this for lots of different things, whether it's racism, sexism, misogyny, not being a bystander to this is the most important thing and how we challenge that behaviour. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's it's saying things to women, but it's also like wolf whistling at them when they're walking mm-hmm. down the street. Totally. It's not big and it's not clever. And it is a form of harassment and it makes us feel really, really uncomfortable. So it's like, if you see, you know, there's all kind of tends to be workmen you know that's what i've always tended to find anyway um you know them sitting in their van or whatever and they think it's okay to wolf whistle a woman walking past challenge the behavior of your colleagues tell them that's not acceptable and not okay don't just sit there feeling uncomfortable Mm. totally and and you know to leave no one in doubt it has to be men that do like you know Mm -hmm. this is women highlighting a problem and it's a problem that men need to solve because it is our behavior is our attitudes which are causing this and we need to take ownership of that um all of us and whether you know straight gay or whatever we all need to do that and call out the misogyny that we experience and we see and that's not easy i think we've got to be careful as well because you know i know how difficult it is to be in a group of lads who are having a nice time someone makes some jokes and to be the person that's like that's not funny like i know that's not easy Mm -hmm. and i know that that's really difficult especially when drinks involved but at some point, we've got to start, you know, it's a bit cheesy, but it's like what Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. At some point, you've got to start to be the person that calls it out. The same way that, you know, 50, not even 50, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, people started to say in groups of mates, nah, see like these gay jokes, they need to stop. Like, what, actually, that's not acceptable. Interesting. One of the things that I was involved at when I was an working in Westminster was um, passing the Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Abuse Act in 2017. And that um, called for the UK government to ratify the Istanbul Convention, which is the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women. And they were now almost five years on from from that, um, four years on, and they've still not ratified that convention um, you know, making a clear statement in in support of preventing and combating violence against women, and these are things that you know, that you've got the hate crime bill in in the Scottish Parliament. You've got things like this ratifying an, a, an international convention. These are big signs that show people that these things are unacceptable. And then when you've got governments that dilly and dally about these things, um, you know, it doesn't show that 
unifying voice against violence against women and girls. And and a lot of the time, you know, a lot of the arguments we um I think it, it broke the record of the longest speech in Parliament. It was something like 97 minutes. Philip Davies stood up and tried to filibuster um, the uh, Ailey Whiteford's bill. Um, and, you know, a lot of that was, well, what about the men? And what it's not all men. And all of the same arguments that we hear, um, we still hear them today, obviously. Um be ashamed but, of himself. You know, if, if you were confident in being a man you should be confident to stand up to you know that male behavior not saying oh i deserve to be treated better because i'm a nice man how stand up and stop letting this behavior go unchallenged that's the important bit and accept responsibility because we've all got responsibility we're all culpable in this and and until we accept the responsibility then I just don't think it will get better. And I think when people go, well, oh, some people are bad, but not me. It's like, what well, the problem is that you're making actually all about you and it's not about you. It's about women and it's about girls and it's about people who, who are in a society. And it's not about you feeling like, oh, I don't feel someone should cast aspersions on me. It's not about you. Um, you need to take ownership and move and on. And what you've just highlighted there, Nathan, as well as one of the issues of Westminster, you know, all the power trips, et cetera, that, you know, such an important bit of legislation or such an important issue could be topped out by a senior MP is just completely ridiculous and completely absurd that well, we don't actually, these issues don't get the no, time that they deserve. Absolutely. Thankfully, it didn't get talked out. Um, and then he stood up and made a mistake by withdrawing all his amendments so that it went straight to a vote. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, a brilliantly uh, <laughs> managed piece of parliamentary process by the Speaker it's of the House of Commons. How often that happens, though, is oh. you know, like, for instance, Stuart, Stuart McDonald, Glasgow Stuart McDonald's unpaid trial shift bill, that got talked out. And you're like, mm. how are we sitting here all these years, I think four years later, and still this, like, you know, abhorrent practice is going on because the Parliament doesn't actually serve the function that it should yeah. in allowing people that's like, a, that, like that, that to go through? And that's a structural problem within Parliament, right? That actually, okay. the Speaker should stop that. Yeah, like, but they the Speaker's, should be allowed not, to the speaker's not allowed. So on private members' bill days, which are usually Fridays, the Speaker, there, there are certain rules that do not apply. So you're not allowed to set time limits for speeches and you're not allowed to stop someone speaking. Um, and you know that, and and the guillotine must fall at half past two. So all the other arrangements that exist on Monday to Thursday are thrown out of the window for Friday. Yes, yeah, stupid. It's just a, another flaw with institution. Mm -hmm. So why don't we talk about you, your life, and your entry into that institution? <laughs> <laughs> It sounds, it sounds, one, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it sounds like we're committing you to, the, <laughs> to somewhere. Maybe it's a bit like that. Um, so, it, so Amy, you, you were saying uh, before, before we before we get to sort of your election, um, like, so what was your what was your sort of your story in brief before you got elected to? Um, well, to, to the UK Parliament. So um, you got elected in 2019. So so before then, you were saying that you worked in the Scottish Parliament. Had you've always been involved in politics? or Yeah, like... so I've been, been involved in politics since I've been in university. Uh, as soon as I left, I started uh, interning for Ely McLeod, who was the MS, one of the regional MSPs for the south of Scotland and the Minister for Environment and Land Reform at the point I worked for her. So as soon as I left university, I went into railing, you know, perks of Erasmus and being part Good of the stuff. EU. Um, 
And uh, and then went straight to work for Aileen. And then when she lost her seat into the 2016 election, I then started working for Rona Mackay, right. the MSP for Sir Kelvin and Bearsden. And in terms of your wanting to get involved in politics, you know, I think you've talked before about, you know, being a, a teenage cancer survivor and, 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 you know, that giving you the motivation to want to protect the NHS. Was that one of the motivations for being involved in politics? Yeah, that was a huge one for me was just, you know, Obviously, the NHS has saved my life more times than I would like to have used it. But um, where where I am as well is that it being unwell brought about like a an awareness of inequality that I don't think I was aware of before, and it made me realise that I was probably in a, a slightly more privileged position than than other people because my parents were able to take time off work to make sure that I was okay when I wasn't well. But I was in a ward with other young people who hadn't seen their parents for weeks on end. And it's because that they couldn't have survived on the benefits that the UK government offer. Mm. No welfare is not good enough and is not enough to sustain a family, much less one person, never mind a whole family. So I think I became more aware of that kind of thing. And I've never been a bystander. I've always wanted, you know, I think change comes from within. So I've always wanted to kind of be part of that change instead of just sitting by and watching it happen and commentating on it. Because I'm very good at passing my comments about things, but I wanted to actually be part of the change. So that was kind of weird. So you, you were, you were... No, Sorry, no, no, please finish, Amy. No, you're fine. I was going to say, so you were, so you, you were, you were diagnosed, um, you were, you were diagnosed with cancer when you were 19. Yeah. And obviously that's a, that's a pretty brutal time because that's just when your life's getting started, right? You're, you, you've, you've finished school, you're ready to go and suddenly everything came to a halt and is that how you felt things happened or yeah, that's exactly you couldn't have really put it any better to be honest it was you know when you come out of school and everything's just going so well and you're spending all your time with your friends and you're kind of flying mm. high at uni and everything's just going so well and then suddenly I just came crashing down like there was no sort of phased going down it was very much like like I just crumbled it was very it was I think the age that happened to me at there's no good age for it to happen, but the age that happened to me, it was incredibly difficult because you're obviously so sociable and, um, you know, things were going really, really well and just left school and everything was great and it just all suddenly mm. came crashing down around me. That, that made it a lot what, more difficult. And one of the things that people sometimes don't talk about is like the mental health repercussions of medical of medical Definitely, trauma. Yeah. And it's like, actually, like if, if that was happened to me when I was 19, I, I don't think I'd be able to cope as well as I might be able to cope if it happened now because I don't, you know, you don't necessarily have the support network or the the tools to support you. And and like you say, you're, you probably just feel like everything stopped. And so that, that must have had significant mental health repercussions, being stuck in a ward, not knowing if you were going to get out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, I was sort of naive. And at that point when you're 19, I think most people think that they're invincible. I certainly didn't think I could get that sick and, you know, be in that position. And I was sort of in a position of disbelief almost when it happened. And, um, you know, going forward from that, I was really, really, really um, upset about the scar that I was left with on my face. That had the biggest mental health impact for me because I just felt like I was so I was so embarrassed by it. And then if people ever pointed it out to me, I didn't want to talk about it because I was so upset because I was, you know, still unwell and waiting for, you know, results of of tests, etc. But when I did actually get told that I'd had the all clear, um, I felt I felt like I should be proud of my scar, but I wasn't. I still, I really, really wasn't mm. at all. I used to be so embarrassed by it. I used to hate. Used to cover it up with the thickest foundation I possibly could. 
And it probably actually, now that I look back, it probably accentuated it more because I had so much foundation on one side of my face and not that much on the other. But, <laughs> um, you know, we, we do the things that we do to hide our imperfections, don't we? But yeah, I mean, obviously... You, you obviously know, it's really a... interesting. Yeah. Sorry? It, it, it's really interesting you say that because my sister was involved in a really bad car accident and it left her with a, a significant scar on her face. And it took her a long time to be able to be comfortable with it. And what she used to do is exactly that. She overcompensated and, you know, you'd say things to her like, as a loving brother, like, you'd be like, to be honest, I think it kind of makes it worse. But that's not what people want to hear. You're like, you know, it's like, I could see exactly like you say, you're like, you've now just got a giant blob of foundation covering like it. And people are like, what's that giant blob? That's um, it. Like, it's, it's so much easier. You think that you're doing the right thing, but you're, you're really not at all. Um, yeah, it's just, it was, I found that really, really difficult. I think, you know, obviously as well, I was kind of out out of university for a year, um, mm. just with a bit of time. Did you go back to uni? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. That was a big decision, actually. I took, I had to take the year out um, just with how long treatment was taken and I had needed further surgery and things. And by the time mm. I went back, I was sort of like, do I want to go back to uni? Like, is this what I want anymore? Because when you leave school, it kind of felt like the natural path because everyone was doing it. Mm-hmm. But after I was like, is this what I actually want to do? So I had a really, really long and hard think about it and still wasn't actually 100% sure when I did go back. But mm. I gave it my, my best shot and I, I went through it anyway. Do you think that was the right decision now? Do you know, obviously it sounds silly saying no, given where I am just now, but I don't know if it was the best decision for me. Like, I don't know if it needed to be. I don't know if I needed to go to university. I think life experience is sometimes like the best thing. Uh, you know, a lot, I know a lot of people that have went to like college or done like, you know, the modern apprenticeships and things and they've got gotten to really, really amazing places and it seems to give you a really good sort of work education balance as opposed to going to uni and just being told about things and not actually experiencing them. Totally. Yeah, I, I dropped I out of uni to to go and work in Scottish in the Scottish Parliament yeah. um, and worked my way up from, from there because uni wasn't right for me. So That's it. You don't need a degree to do these things. Like, no one ever said to me in the Scottish Parliament, oh, what's your degree in? Tell me about what you've done. What exam results did you get? What did you sit? No one cares when you actually get into the workplace. Like, the stuff that you think, like, I loved my dissertation when I was at uni. I was a wee bit obsessed with it. And I would, like, I, would, I could bore you about it for hours, but I won't. Um, but no one's ever asked me about it since I left uni because it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah. I think you'll find that my degree in history and classics is still really essential <laughs> to my job every single day. <laughs> um, it's true though. It's true. Like, and it's a bit like every time you do a qualification, you think it's like the most important thing ever. And then once you've done it, no one ever asks about it again because they're exactly, just they're, they're just gateway entry things. But like you say, actually maybe they're not gateway entry things particularly in, in certain careers so i don't know anyone that got a job in politics because they had a degree in politics exactly that's it like that's not well, why I you get ne- a job I, there in fairness i nearly never got a job in politics because i didn't have a degree my cv oh. was put in a pile of do not interview at one point oh, um oh yeah because i didn't have a degree but um, a good a good reference from a previous employer um, led to, led to me getting a job. But sometimes it does. Sometimes that's the case. I guess it depends on who's who's doing the the sifting, as it were. Um, it definitely but, does. That's not something like as an employer now myself. Yeah. That's not something I would prioritise as someone yeah. having a degree. Mm. I'd rather and, someone had the experience and the skills to be able to to work to do the job. 
and maybe that's something that that should you know be a protection is that your your qualifications shouldn't be the thing that st- stands you in a, a better stead for for a job. But well, that's it. The uh, qualification I've got that I'm most proud of um, came from doing the the children's hearing system in Scotland. Mm. So I was a volunteer panel member from um, just after. So I started doing it when when I was working for Rona, and that's the the thing I'm most proud of. The thing I think I learned the most from. Far more than I learned in my four years at uni, um, when I was doing doing the children's hearing system, it's just it's a fantastic thing to get involved in, um, and it really really helped me. And I think it sort of scoped me on a good path for going into going into this this role, which is helpful. It's true actually that often the ones you're most proud of are the ones that maybe are the ones that you felt like you were most interested in, but also like were quite a challenge to get sometimes. Like the one that I'm really proud of is like, uh, like I used to be a teacher, so I've got a, a PGCE and like, I'm really proud of that because it was like the hardest year of my life. And, and it was like so difficult. And, and so then you're like, that's the thing, like forget about all the other stuff. That's the thing that matters. Um, one, Once uh, you had, you had sort of come out of, of university and you went and worked in the Scottish Parliament, you then became the um, the candidate for Eastern Burton, Dumbartonshire, Dumbartonshire, Dumbarton sorry. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, where you unseated, deseated, dethroned, like, <laughs> I don't know unseated. <laughs> unseated. <laughs> I think dethroned. You dethroned Joe Swinson, became the queen. Does of, that mean I'm um, on the throne now? <laughs> that means you're on the throne. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, what so, was it? What was it that made you want to stand first? Before we talk about the, the, you know, the election, what was it that motivated you to stand as an MP at that point? I think you know I'd kind of always thought that I would stand at some point, but you know whether that would be to be for be a councillor or whether to be an MSP or an MP, and mm. I was quite you know open to any any opportunity. And when obviously the, this election came up and there was a chance to stand in Eastern Bartonshire thought why not just go for it and everyone was like oh it's fine you're never going to get elected it's okay no give it a go but I don't do anything half-heartedly so I put my absolute heart and soul into this campaign and done everything that I possibly could and it obviously did pay off but a a very slim majority of I think 149 149 is my favorite number now (laughs) <laughs> yeah 149 so 0.3% majority which is uh, which is like very very thin but you must have been like find me those 149 people because I'm buying each of them a drink well um, that's the funny part of when you get elected isn't it because you never find the 10,000 people that never voted for you because everyone did mm. vote for you or so they tell you anyway <laughs> so everyone I've met has voted for me and yeah. there was an iconic <laughs> moment on election night when Nicola Sturgeon was I don't know if you'd put the word caught, but she um, was filmed with her reaction to you winning the seat. That Now that's become, you know, a widespread meme of you winning that seat. Um, surely that's quite incredible as well. I get that sent to me at least once a day. It's fantastic. That's great. Can, <laughs> it's can I ask you... It just makes me laugh. Yeah. Can I ask you a slightly po- big, bigger political question? So obviously you defeating Joe Swinson, who was leader of the UK Liberal Democrats, was a huge victory. Um, obviously for you personally also for the SNP, but it was also a massive defeat for the Lib Dems, who, let, let's be honest, have uh, like have fared even worse than Scottish Labour. Um, and we don't talk about them very much in this podcast, I mean, maybe we should talk about them more. Why do you think the Lib Dems are, it appear to be in such a steep decline across the UK? They don't stand for anything, do they? 
like and what what we've proved as well is that when they do stand for something or they you know press really hard on an issue like Brexit, um, you know, saying we're, they're going to undo Brexit or what was it? What was their their tagline on that? I can't actually remember. Um, oh. but they basically said they were going to undo Brexit, didn't yeah. they? Um, as soon as they stand for something massive, I think their voters are quite wishy washy and they don't really believe in anything majorly. They're just quite happy to go along with things. So when Joe Swinson then announced that she wanted to like undo Brexit or redo Brexit, bollocks to Brexit was their uh, tagline. <laughs> the um, she was the, like all their voters were then like, oh, we can't vote for that now. Do you know we need to, we're like, where's our, where's our line on that? They like to kind of go down the middle, don't they? And obviously, I think my opinion was that Joe Swinson becoming leader, and we've many conversations about this <laughs> prior to the election, but Joe Swinson becoming leader was going to expose her in a way that I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. Because she was going to get the platform and people were going to see what we knew about her um, to become a reality. But, and what, what we saw was that happen, you know, saying she's going to push the nuclear button, all these different things. I mean, some of it oh, was, it was a ridiculous. Of nonsense, it was but cringe. some of it was like really, really serious and really awful. Um, and it was it was really interesting for us because on the doorsteps, you know, we, normally people will say like little comments to you, but I was getting people being like, my MP said she was going to push the nuclear button. I can't possibly vote for her. And I was like, oh, right, okay, this is actually, this has really resonated with you. Like, let's have a chat about it. Mm. Um, so I, I found that really interesting, certainly during the campaign. But, you know, going forward, I don't really know, I don't really know what <laughs> what the Lib Dems are going for. You know, they don't want to rejoin the EU now. So what what do they actually stand for? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, Honestly, I'd love to get a Lib Dem on to ask them because I don't know what the Liberal Democrats stand for. like, And I think, you know, the, the two biggest policies that in my head that they had was that they stood for, like, voting reform, in favour of that, it's great, and they stood mm-hmm. for staying part of and being more part of the EU. Um, they lost the voting reform referendum, which I thought was very half-hearted, <coughs> and we're now out of the EU. So in terms of their political platform, it's a disaster. <laughs> like, and and really- people... People don't trust. We we are have we do have at least one Liberal Democrat coming on the podcast during our um, run up to the election special. But I think one of the what caused the start of the decline was when they um, and the Labour Party have felt this as well in Scotland is when they got in bed with the Tories and undid their biggest you know their their biggest yeah. election pledge, which was to end student debt or not increase it was not increase tuition fees. Not increase tuition fees. The big pledge, Nick Clegg, all over the place, signing this pledge. And then the first thing he did was when he got in, and this wasn't even like a year down the line, it was pretty much written into the agreement um, of the coalition was that the tuition fees would go up. Um, and they just sold out students straight away. And that's where, you know, lots of people just can't trust them. That was their core vote as well, wasn't it? Yeah. At that yeah. point. And I think, you know, potentially Joe Swinson being as part of that coalition, a minister in that coalition, and then becoming leader, taking them into a general election, obviously wasn't a good standpoint. And now they've got Ed Davey, who wasn't part of that coalition, but, you know, is he really the most inspiring leader to take you into another election in the future? Well, let's stop talking about the Liberal Democrats and get back to, to you. Did you think you were going to win, Amy? Uh, like, I did, did... I go into it, obviously. I thought I would give it my best shot and, you know, do do whatever I could to win, but I didn't certainly didn't think I was going to win at that point, no. But the last couple, probably the last week, maybe not the last couple, just the last week, we're certainly getting a feeling that something was changing 
and our canvassing data was coming back showing that it was going to be a lot closer than what the polls were showing. So we don't always believe polls. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so I think, you know, we got to the point where I was thinking this is very, very close and I could win. But on, on polling day especially, it was just fantastic, like standing outside polling stations and having people coming up and shaking your hand when you could shake hands, obviously, and giving you thumbs mm. up and just, you know, saying you've got my vote and you're so inspiring and you're this and you're that. And it was just, oh, it was just amazing. And it really felt like something had changed mm. and there was a, a mood shift in Eastern Bartonshire towards us, um, which was which was obviously, you know, very promising. And then on polling night, I got home just after 10 o'clock when the exit poll was, and I walked into my, my living room as the exit poll was coming on. And that was the first moment I'd seen a poll or seen someone else out with maybe my family, my friends, believe that we could do it. So it felt like we were mm. kind of turning a corner again. And obviously you don't believe exit polls, you take them with a pinch of salt, but it felt like it was just reinforcing what we thought we knew. So got my hair blow dried and then I went to the counter. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? It's always with the counts and stuff. It's always like, what do you do? Like you, you polls have closed and then you're like, well, we've got like six hours until yeah. at least. Especially at a December election where I was literally soaking, like my hair was like plastered to my head. I had lovely long hair then. <laughs> so talking about um sort of moving forward you you effectively were elected for six months and then in in june 2020 um something significant happened which was that you you suffered a a, a brain hemorrhage effectively which was bleeding on the brain is that right yeah so just completely out of the blue i have well sorry i have a, a previously well-managed health condition so it wasn't completely out of the blue i suppose but previously well-managed health condition and just suddenly um, took a stroke or a brain hemorrhage, whatever way, whatever way you want to phrase it, um, on the 10th of June and was in hospital for four months. So what did it feel like? If it, like... Uh, I'd had a sort of minor, sort of very insignificant headache during the day and was just sort of, you know, that way you kind of gouch on the sofa and you're not really doing that much. Um, well, sorry, I did a virtual que a question in virtual parliament and then I gouched in the sofa. So I did have quite, quite a <laughs> day, I suppose. And then in the evening, just suddenly took like the worst pain I've ever felt in my head and I lost all movement in my left arm and my left leg. So I couldn't stand, I was a collapse on the floor of my, my, my bathroom and I couldn't stand up. So I couldn't And were you aware of that up. happening? I remember like bits and bobs of it. There's not a, it's not like a very like free flowing, you know, recollection of it, but um, I've got like bits and bobs of recollection. It's just, it was just so scary. horrific. Yeah, it was really scary. Mm. So I managed to phone myself an ambulance because just by sheer chance, you know, I'm wearing joggers all the time as I'm sure everyone else are. So I had my phone in my pocket, which is quite nice. Um, and obviously that, that really helped in terms of, of saving me probably because there was no one else at home at that point. So my partner came, came home and found me fortunately as well. And then it, it took you a long time to recover, didn't it? So you were yeah. four months, was it? In, in yeah, the... I mean, I'm still working on my recovery just now. Um, I just had to be obviously like well enough to get out of hospital. That was the biggest struggle. Um, mm. But obviously being in hospital during the pandemic, that's something that's uh, got, yeah. a, got a quite significant impact on mental health as well because I never saw my family for, it was almost a month um, without without seeing them. And obviously the, the contact that they're having with the hospital isn't the same as when someone's around your bedside and being able to have that like direct conversation about your health and the plan going forward and and different things. It was a very, very different uh, situation being in hospital this time. 
Must have felt very isolating, I imagine. Yeah, it was just it was it was just weird. Like I couldn't, I could, obviously with the type of brain injury that I've got, I couldn't quite process why they weren't there initially. Like why my family couldn't come in. That was that was really upsetting. But you know what? The NHS is just amazing. So nurses were giving me the opportunity and holding up an iPad uh, in the ward so that I could FaceTime like my parents and my partner, which was really nice. Because at that point, I, I, didn't, I didn't obviously have my phone or anything in hospital with me initially. They had to bring that up eventually. It was just um, and quite a case. How did time. you find the recovery process? Like, like did you have to, because you said that you lost movement in one of your arms. Did you have to learn to remove that again? Yeah, so I'm, I'm still learning all this stuff. I can, I can move my arm mo- way more than I could now. Um, there was a moment at the start of July where I was still up in the ward before I moved to the rehab unit. Um, I spent six weeks in the ward and then another two and a half months in the rehab unit. And it was the moment that my arm was able to move for the first time. And it was just, it's a feeling that I can't even really describe to you properly because it's something that you never think, something that you never think you're going to be so excited for and so, you know, taken aback when it actually does happen because you never want to lose the feeling or movement in an arm to begin with. But it was yeah. such such an incredible moment when I actually managed to move it. And it was maybe only an inch or so. And it was only lying in the bed. And I was able to move it a tiny little bit. And me and one of the nurses just had the most amazing night. We were both crying. Because <laughs> I, I was able to get that back. It was it was really lovely. But even at that, you know, moving limbs is quite a big thing. And getting that back is obviously, like, significant. But I had no sitting or standing balance. So that was two really significant things that I had to work on. So me even sitting here just now couldn't have happened, you know, six months ago. And but that that was quite a, thank God for the NHS. I know that's it. That was quite a funny process because, you know, I just I just kept falling all the time basically. <laughs> um, they would sit me like on a chair on a bed, and I would just go like, oh. Um, but the way that they teach you how to to get your sitting balance back is just it's such a bizarrely difficult process, but it's quite it's quite amusing as well. They'll say, imagine there's a twenty pound note or no, a ten pound note sitting under your bum and there's like a really, really intense wind blowing just now. So you need to sit right in the centre to keep that ten pound note there. And uh, otherwise it'll blow away. And then they're like, Oh, the wind's getting worse. Oh, the, the ten pound note's gonna blow away. And, and then it's oh. like, Oh, if, that, if that's not working, they'll make it a twenty pound note. So you're like a wee bit more intense, you know it is like you don't want to lose that twenty pound. So all that kind of stuff, so you know. Last last No one you go, sorry sorry i think we've got a slight a slight delay which is why i keep sort of cutting over you i'm really sorry and i was gonna say last time um last time you came out of hospital after a long period of time you came out with the determination to get into politics and and change the world Has coming out of hospital this time giving you a new determination or has it reasserted the one that you had before it's reasserted what i had before but i think i just believe in myself more now which is you know quite nice i think you know i'm I'm actually proud of my scars. I've got a, a smashing new one on my head now, which is now covered by my hair. But it's it's just given me a sort of, you know what, these scars saved, Jamie. Like, why are you trying to hide yeah. them? Why are you why are you like sad about them? Let's just embrace them fully and, you know, support an NHS and support yourself. You know, I think I've got a sense of determination that I probably never actually knew I had. I knew I, I, I knew I had some of it, but I've definitely got a renewed sense of determination from being in hospital this time. And your story will be, you know, so inspiring to other people, whether it's 
teenage cancer survivors or people that have gone through a similar um, health condition like you have more recently. Um, does that give you more de a determination, you know, to get getting back to Westminster, one of the, the you know, speaking at PMQs, having just returned to work, um, really, you know, gets across that sign of how strong you've been at being able to recover and get back to work. Such yeah, an important moment. Yeah, definitely. I think when I wasn't well, like when I had the melanoma previously, if I'd been able to see someone in a sort of position of power or to be able to see someone on TV or a celebrity even who'd had a similar situation, I think it would have maybe inspired me a bit more to kind of get on, whereas I felt quite isolated and alone in that respect. Mm. And the one thing that keeps it keeps striking a chord with me, whenever, even health professionals now, whenever I see them or speak to them, they go, you've had a stroke, oh, but you're so young. Mm. And I'm like, I must hear that like mm. twice a week. And I'm like, right, okay, I get it. But I need to use that. It might, I might find it annoying, but I need to use that to the benefit of other people. I can't just sit back and let it happen. There's bound to be other, you know, stroke survivors or who are in a younger age category than a sort of normal stroke victim or stroke survivor mm. um, who could, you know, see me and potentially think, you know, there's there's a whole world out there that I could still achieve things and there's you know, doors are open, it doesn't automatically mean because you've had these health incidents that you you can't achieve your dreams and achieve things for other people. I'd like to still let that happen. But at the same time, I don't want to be labelled as like the cancer MP or the stroke MP. That kind of mm. doesn't sit that well with me. I want to be a bit more than that. So it's about finding the balance between well, it's, it. It's part of your it's it's part of your story, but it's not the whole story. Because the whole it. story is you, right? And but that part is is powerful and I think it'll be powerful for people hearing that to know that, you know, you can get these major setbacks, but you can still move forward. And um and you you demonstrate that, which is which is amazing. So thank you for sharing that with us. No, no problem at all. Thank you. Um well, so we'll just to to wrap up our final section of the podcast as always our uh, recommendations where we ask our, our guests and, and we recommend something uh, for you to watch, read, listen to or eat are usually the recommendations that we, we make. Um, Amy, I know that you've brought um, brought a recommendation. So what would you like to recommend to our listeners? Um, so I would like to recommend another podcast. It's from Michelle Obama. Oh, Ooh. one of the Ooh. things. One of the podcast. Ooh. I know. I did warn you about that. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things that got me through being in hospital. Was listening to her podcast. I found it really, really resonated well with me, and probably quite relevant given the, the topics that we've we've been speaking about today. What does she talk about? Oh, she's got various ones. So she's got one with um, Barack Obama, and then she's got one with her mum, and then she's got one with her one of her doctors, where she talks about like ladies' health issues and things. It's really interesting. Okay, and yeah. she's got a wonderful voice to listen to. You know, oh, she does. whatever you want, you know, you might not be completely enamoured by the subject, but actually, you want to listen to it. She lures in, doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's, That's a bit like Barack as well. He's, yeah. His well, voice I'm kind just of. Just going to say, in. I've been reading uh, Barack Obama's new book, but I've mm -hmm. got it on Audible as well, so I read it yeah. like physically and on Audible because his voice is just <laughs> so lovely. Is, yeah, yeah I, nice. my problem with um, listening to his book on Audible because I also uh, downloaded it on Audible was that um, I'd fall asleep <laughs> because it's such a soothing voice. I'm not um, going to pretend that that doesn't happen. That's exactly what it does. <laughs> <laughs> I've always got to scroll back to see which is the bit that I've stopped. Uh, it's I quite forgot. hard to find the exact bit that you've like fallen asleep at. <laughs> uh, Nick, what are you recommending this week? 
Um, I'm, I'm going to recommend a TV show because that's normally my, my gig. And the one that I'm going to recommend is Class by um, Darren McGarvey. So Darren wrote um, Poverty Safari, which is an amazing book about growing up in poverty in Glasgow and talking about all the different factors that both affected him, but actually about how we as a society engage with and treat and uh, think about different social and economic groupings in class is just the next step in that and you know he it's brilliant because he he sort of takes on this idea that scotland is somehow a less class-based society than england and sort of really engages with it and talks about how all the pernicious power of different elements with our class society and there's four episodes so far on iplayer he's a really good presenter um and i think there's something about it which is genuinely very telling about where we are as a country in scotland and where we want to be and how Maybe there's more barriers to getting to where we want to be than where we that we think. Um, but the first step of overcoming those barriers is knowing what they are. So I think this is a good way of of doing that. So yeah, recommend it. It's on iPlayer. Um, Darren McGarvey, class. Ooh. What and about you? I am recommending the Circle Celebrity, um, which is classy. Um, raising money for Stand Up to Cancer. Um, and, you know, it's got great people on it, including um, an old friend of mine, Bag of Chips, who is unfortunately not playing herself, but is uh, playing Kim Woodburn, um, which Brilliantly. has been quite funny indeed. Um, so I would definitely, if you want some uh, sort of to get away from the uh, mundane news or TV, get watching The Circle Celebrity, because it's quite funny. Yeah. Can I give you an interesting Circle fact? Oh, so the circle, the circle is filmed in Salford in in, in Manchester, right? Yeah. And that's where the building is. And for the American one, they yeah, also they put, filmed yeah. it in Salford, but they then did aerial shots of like American cities. So people in America thought it was filmed in America, but it wasn't. It was filmed in Manchester with Salford. Um, I love facts like that. Yeah, yeah it's cheaper strange. for them to bring everyone over from uh, America to Salford than it was to build a new apartment. A block. new, yeah. Um, Great. Quite right. At least it's getting used more and not sit an apartment block being sat empty, um, which would be terrible. Um, well, that's just got to the end of the podcast. I guess the all that's left to say is really a big thank you to you, Amy, for um, joining us and being so um, open and, and candid with a lot of the conversations that we've had. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's thank been you so fun. Much. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. It's a pleasure. Oh, come back anytime. <laughs> come back next week. Give us another couple of hours. Like anytime you want. <laughs> Um, well thank you so much to you and if you're listening to the podcast make sure you tune in every week up until the election where we're going to be uh, speaking to politicians candidates um, hearing from uh, campaigners across the third sector and campaign groups all about what we hope to um, to achieve in the next parliamentary uh, session we've got a wonderful lineup of speakers and it's been started off by uh, hearing from the wonderful amy callahan today so do give us a like follow review um or um give us a recommendation wherever you listen to your podcasts um, and that's all for us thank you for listening goodbye bye-bye bye-bye